We have been discussing the Brahma Nimantanika Sutta, the invitation of a Brahma. And in this sutta, the Buddha is relating an incident where at one time a certain Brahma deity named Bhaka the Brahma gave rise to the deluded thought that his world was eternal, everlasting, not subject to decay, and that he himself was the almighty, all-powerful God who's the creator and the eternal ruler of this universe. And so the Buddha thinks that he should convince Bhaka the Brahma that this is a wrong view that he has grasped hold of. And so the Buddha makes a visit to the Brahma world and Bhaka the Brahma tries to persuade the Buddha to accept his own conception of himself as the all-powerful creator ruling in an eternal heaven. And when the Buddha rejects this idea and tries to convince the Brahma that he is wrong, then Mara takes possession of one of the members of the Brahma's retinue, Brahma's assembly, and tells the Buddha that he should not reject or disbelieve this all-powerful deity, but he should recognize that he is the overlord, the wielder of mastery, the lord maker and creator, and so on. And he also threatens him with punishment and affliction if he rejects the claims of Brahma. And then when Mara says this, then the Buddha says to Mara, in paragraph six, he says, I know you, evil one, I know you. You are Mara, the evil one. And this Brahma and the Brahma's assembly and all the members of the assembly, all of these, have fallen into your hands. They are all in your power. But I have not fallen into your power. Now I explained last, last week that this sutta can be read at different levels. At the superficial level, the surface level, we could understand it as just a kind of dramatic dialogue or discussion featuring particular individuals. One is Gautama, the Buddha. The other is a particular deity in the Brahma world. The other is Mara as the evil deity. But we can also read this sutta in a somewhat symbolic way, in which, this is my own understanding, Bhaka the Brahma can be taken to represent existence, or samsaric existence, or bhava, becoming, being, which is deluded about itself and in the grip of wrong view, the wrong view of permanence. 
that is all unenlightened beings even those who are followers of Buddhism but we still think that our life is permanent this world is permanent even though we recognize that there's impermanence but we still live our life as though everything were permanent and everlasting and the reason why all of existence is blinded by this wrong view is because all beings except the enlightened ones are in the grip of tanha, craving and it's really this craving for existence bhava tanha which is the controlling power behind all samsara and here in the sutta the craving, this very powerful tanha is represented by Mara and the one who is completely free from the power of craving is the Buddha, the enlightened one who teaches others the way to get free from the grip of Mara, from the grip of craving. Okay, so this takes us as far as we covered last time. And now after the Buddha has shown Mara that he is not deceived by this subtle device which Mara has tried to use by entering into the body of the Brahma deity, then Bhakka the Brahma now speaks up and is going to try again to use all of his powers of argument to convince the Buddha that he should bow down and worship him and accept his view that his world is permanent and that he is everlasting. Okay, so now in paragraph 7, Bhakka the Brahma says to the Buddha, he says, Good sir, I say of the permanent that it is permanent, of the everlasting that it is everlasting, of the eternal that it is eternal, of the total or absolute that it is absolute, and I say of this which is not subject to pass away, that it is neither born nor ages nor dies nor passes away, and so on. And now Bhakka the Brahma is going to use some threats. He says, before your time, Bhikkhu, he doesn't speak, address the Buddha as the Blessed One, but just as Bhikkhu, as monk. Before your time, there were ascetics and Brahmins in the world whose ascetic practice lasted as long as your whole lifetime. And they would know if there was an escape beyond, that there is an escape beyond, that is some higher state of deliverance. And if there is no escape beyond, they would know that there is no escape beyond. And so, Bhikkhu, I tell you this, that you will find no escape beyond, that is no higher state than this. And if you try, you will only 
meet with frustration and weariness and disappointment. And now Brahma says, now he's going to try to promise a reward to the Buddha. He says, if you will cleave to earth, that is, if you will accept the earth element, the creation, as something good and beautiful, as an expression of the divine will, we can say, if you will cleave to earth, if you can affirm the earth element by holding to it with the view that this is a product or a creation of myself, and if you will hold to the earth element with craving and delight and appreciation, then you will be close to me. You will be within my domain for me to work my will upon and punish. That is here there's both reward, promise of reward and threat of punishment. If you will cleave to the earth, then you'll be close to me. You'll be like a, say, you'll be rewarded in heaven. But if you disobey me, then I will punish you. And similarly, if you cleave to water, to fire, to air, and so to all the living beings, the gods, to everything in fact, then you will be close to me within my domain for me to work my will upon and punish. But then the Buddha says, in paragraph 8, the Buddha replies, he says, I know that, Brahma, and then he repeats the Brahma's statement and then he adds further I understand your reach and your sway to extend thus Bhaka the Brahma has this much power only this much might this much influence then Bhaka the Brahma asks what he means by this and the Buddha says, he replies in verse. He says, as far as moon and sun revolve, shining and lighting up the quarters, over a thousandfold such world does your sovereignty extend. And there you know the high and low, and those with lust and free from lust. The state that is thus and otherwise, the coming and going of beings. Then he says, I understand your reach and sway to extend that much, so that you have this much power, this much might, this much influence. That is, here the Buddha is saying that he understands that Bhaka Brahma is indeed the supreme divinity, the supreme Brahma divinity within a particular world system. 
This will be a world system consisting of a thousand worlds. This will perhaps correspond to the galaxies of modern science. So there are a thousand galaxies with their various lower realms like the hells, the animal realms, the human realms, and above these the heavenly realms, and in all this thousandfold world system up to the Brahma world, the Brahma Loka, Bhaka the Brahma is the Mahabrahma, the supreme divinity. But his power and his lifespan are limited. And now the Buddha is going to show that there are other realms, other worlds, which are even higher than the highest Brahma world, which the Buddha himself knows of, but which Bhaka the Brahma is unaware of. Here the Buddha says now in paragraph 10, he says, Brahma, there are three other bodies, or here bodies means realms, which you do not know of, which you do not see, but which I know and see. Okay, first I will read this, then I'll explain. There is the body or realm called the gods of streaming radiance from which you passed away and were reborn here. Because you have dwelt here long, for a long time, your memory of that has lapsed and thus you do not know it or see it, but I know and see it. Thus Brahma, the Buddha says, thus Brahma, in regard to direct knowledge or super-knowledge, abhinya, I do not stand merely on the same level as you, but rather I am superior, I know more than you. Then there is another body or realm called the gods of refulgent glory. This is the Subakinha Loka. Also that you do not know and see, but I know it and see it. And then there is a realm called the Vehapala realm, which means the gods of great fruit. You do not know or see that, but I know it and see it. And now to explain what these realms are. In the cosmic realm of subtle matter called the Rupa Dhatu, the sphere of fine or subtle matter. There are these four divisions, four tiers, we can say, or four stories. And the lowest of the four stories is the Brahma Loka, which consists of these three subdivisions in which the highest is the department of the chief Brahmas. And this is the realm where Bhaka the Brahma resides. 
And this realm is achieved by gaining mastery over the first jhana. So those who have achieved a certain degree of mastery over the first jhana can be reborn in the Brahma Loka. Then the second level of the Brahma Loka, I'm sorry, the second level of the Rupa Loka, the sphere of subtle matter, is reached by mastering the second jhana. And those who have mastered or attained the second jhana are reborn here. And this second jhana realm also has three subdivisions. And the highest of those three subdivisions is called the realm of the gods of streaming radiance. And the third level of the Rupa Loka is achieved by attaining the third jhana. And the highest subdivision of this sphere is called the realm of the gods of refulgent glory. They must have very luminous bodies and very beautiful. Then the fourth level is achieved by attaining the fourth job and achieving a certain degree of mastery over that job. And the those who achieve mastery over the fourth jhana are reborn in the Vehapala Loka, the world of the gods of great fruit. And so Bhakka the Brahma would have achieved, when he was a human being, according to the statement in the Sutta, he had been reborn in the gods of streaming radiance. And, and then after he passed away from the gods of streaming radiance, then he was reborn in the realm of the Mahabrahmas, the chief Brahmas. And so when Bhakka the Brahma was a human being, it seems that he would have achieved the second jhana, and be, been, he would have been reborn in the gods of streaming radiance. But then when he was reborn as one of the chief Brahmas, then his memory of that previous life disappeared, faded out and disappeared. And so he did not have any knowledge that there were these higher worlds of existence. And therefore, because he lacked that knowledge, he saw that in this thousandfold world system, the highest level is the level of the chief Brahmas. And who is the chief Brahma? He looks around and doesn't see anybody higher than himself. So he sits up like this in his chair, gets everybody else, all of his retinue, to sit on the ground and thinks, I am the chief Brahma. And everybody else has to pay homage to me. <laughs> if somebody comes knocking at his door, he doesn't go answer the door himself, but he has servants to wait on him, 
and he thinks very proudly that I'm the boss, I'm the chief. And so when the Buddha comes to see him, he doesn't rise up from his seat and prepare a seat for the Buddha, but he sees this is just like an ordinary human being coming to see me and I am this super radiant celestial deity. And so he tells to the Buddha, you have to worship me, I am eternal, I am everlasting. If you don't worship me, I will punish you. And now here the Buddha is telling him that I have superior knowledge to you. And now the Buddha has revealed to him these realms that he doesn't know. And now in paragraph 11, the Buddha is going to reveal to Brahma that he knows something even beyond all of these realms that Brahma does not know. This is, passage is a little difficult. He says, Brahma, having directly known earth as earth and having directly known that which is not commensurate with the earthness of earth, I did not claim to be earth, I did not claim to be in earth, I did not claim to be apart from earth, I did not claim earth to be mine, I did not affirm earth. Thus, Brahma, in regard to direct knowledge, I do not stand merely at the same level as you. How then could I know less? Rather, I know more than you. Now in this passage, the Buddha, what the Buddha is revealing is that besides knowing these higher worlds, he also knows that which is transcendent to all the worlds. That is, he knows what is Lokutara, the supermundane reality. And he describes this as something which is not commensurate with the earthness of the earth. That is, it's something which has no counterpart in the, say, the quality of the earth. And he goes through all of the other material elements and the different realms of being. It is something which is not commensurate with water, fire, air, with living beings, with the gods, with Pajapati, with Brahma, with the gods of streaming radiance, the gods of refulgent glory, the gods of grapefruit, the overlord. In fact, the Buddha says, having directly known everything as it is, having known all as all, having directly known that which is not, which does not correspond with 
the allness of the all, which does not correspond to anything in the conditioned world. I did not claim to be all. That is, I had no view about myself, that I am this, I am the earth, I am the water, I am fire, that I had no view of any type of self. I did not claim to be in all, to be in anything. No view of self in the body or in the mind or in anything in the world. I did not claim to be apart from all, to be separate from all, to have some self which is separate. I did not claim all to be mine, that things are mine. I did not affirm all, that is, I did not hold to anything with craving. And so here the Buddha is showing Brahma that he is completely free from all views of self, all conceit or ideas of I am this, I am that, and from all possessiveness claiming to make things mine. And therefore the Buddha is showing that Bhaka the Brahma himself is still completely deluded even though he has such power in the universe. But Brahma imagines I am the all-powerful, eternal deity and this is my creation. I am the ruler above all. So he's really full of these wrong views and this conceit and craving. But the Buddha is completely free from all these attachments and defilements. And now when the Buddha says this, then Brahma sort of challenges him and says, when you claim this, may your claim not turn out to be vain and empty. And then the Buddha replies in verse, this is a rather difficult verse, he says, in fact, I don't like the. I don't really agree with the translation here. But anyway, I'll read it the way it's translated here. The consciousness that makes no showing, nor has to do with finiteness, not claiming being with respect to all, that is not commensurate with the earthness of earth, with the waterness of water, with the allness of all. Yeah, the verse says, Vinyanangani dasanam anantam sapato pabang. And there's always a lot of controversy how it's to be interpreted and translated. Maybe literally I would take it to mean 
the consciousness which is not manifest or which does not manifest anything that is it doesn't manifest any phenomena in the world the earth, water fire, air and so on which is endless or boundless anantam and I would take sabatopabang to mean which is luminous all around and then that is not commensurate with the earthness of earth with the waterness of water with the allness of all then there's a lot of sort of controversy and uncertainty how exactly to understand this statement the commentator Buddhaghosa explains here Vijnana is Nibbana but this is sort of against the mainstream Theravada tradition which says Nibbana is not consciousness, not Vijnana so then Buddhaghosa gives a very um, sort of contrived explanation how, why is Nibbana called Vijnana but I have to say it's not really acceptable in my view what I think the actual meaning of the statement that this consciousness refers not to Nibbana itself but to the consciousness of the Arahant in the Arahatapala Samapati in which the Arahat is aware of Nibbana is cognizant of Nibbana because the Buddha says that Nibbana is beyond the five aggregates so how could he describe Nibbana as Vijnana of some type, of any type <laughs> but there's a special type of meditative absorption called the attainment of the fruit of Arahatship which only Arahants can enter in which they have a completely direct and clear knowledge or experience of Nibbana and I think that consciousness is what is being referred to here and even that consciousness is completely beyond the understanding of any worldling maybe even beyond the understanding of stream enterers once returners and non-returners though they can have some little understanding of it but the fully clear knowledge and understanding of that can only by, be had by our own okay so now when the Buddha makes this disclosure to Bhakta Brahma about this mysterious state of consciousness completely beyond all the phenomena of the world now Brahma is going to try to show the Buddha that he is superior to the Buddha this passage that we come to now this is like the climax of the Sutta the high point 
this is where we have to really get our, all of our cameras <laughs> set. Because this is like the high point, a direct challenge of Brahma to the Buddha. It's a contest, a kind of Olympic contest or Olympian contest between the supreme lord of samsara, the, the one who imagines himself the supreme lord, the Mahabrahma, and the one who claims to know more even than the supreme deity, the one who claims to be the knower of Nibbana, the one who sees the way out of samsara. And so Brahma says, I will banish from you, I will disappear from you. This seems to be the way in which the contest or confrontation is expressed to see who can disappear from the sight of whom. And so Brahma thinks that he can banish from the sight of the Buddha. And so the Buddha says, if you can banish from me, then try to do so. And so Bhakta Brahma keeps on saying that I shall banish from the monk Gotama. I shall banish from the monk Gotama. But even though he says this, but he's unable to banish. He uses all of his psychic power but no matter how many times he makes this determination, I will banish, the Buddha still sees him. He's still within the sight of the Buddha. And so now the Buddha responds by saying, Brahma, I shall vanish from you. And so Brahma says, if you can do so, try. Then the Buddha performed a, an act of psychic power, supernormal power, such that he completely disappeared from the sight of Bhaka the Brahma and from the chief ministers in Brahma's assembly and from all the members of Brahma's assembly. They could not see him but the Buddha could speak and they could hear his voice. And so with this, the Buddha is showing that his power is greater than that of even the highest of the Mahabrahmas. And then the Buddha here recites a verse which is again a verse, a very profound philosophical meaning. He says, and I think there's maybe some mistake in this translation. It's also, it's a very, in Pali, it's very difficult verse. Having seen fear or danger in every mode of being, in every mode of existence, Yeah.
And here I would now translate this, having seen fear in every mode of being, and having seen being seeking for non-being, I did not affirm any mode of being, nor did I cling to any delight in being. Okay, the first line, having seen the fear or danger in every type of existence, since all existence is impermanent, subject to suffering, changing, unreliable, insecure. So because of this, I did not cling to any type of existence in the world and to samsara, in samsara. The second line, I would say, this is really very difficult, and I'm not sure that exactly of what the meaning might be, but I would take it to be having seen that there are some other recluses from the other sects who also are aware of the danger in existence, but they have still the view of self and they believe that the way to escape from samsara is to annihilate the self, to exterminate the self. These are what we call the Uchedavadans, those who hold the doctrine of annihilation. And these were some of the ascetics and recluses that were existing in the Buddha's time. These generally live lives of renunciation and detachment and meditation, but their main practice was self-mortification, seeking to annihilate and to extinguish the self by exterminating all of their desires through fasting, punishing themselves by subjecting themselves to all sorts of tapas, ascetic practices. But the Buddha sees that there is no escape in this way, because even though these ascetics are trying to gain deliverance, but they still have the wrong view of self, and so they're not, they don't know the correct way to extinguish craving and ignorance. And the Buddha says, okay, that there is no escape in this way, but I myself, by rooting out the wrong view which affirms existence as being self or as belonging to self, and by seeing the impermanence the unsatisfactory nature of all existence, I did not cling to anything and did not seek delight in any type of existence. And when the Buddha speaks this verse, I think this verse itself 
discloses the symbolic nature of this sutta. That here, when the Buddha speaks this verse, I think it makes it clear that Brahma is the representative, the supreme representative of existence, of being or becoming. And the problem with Brahma, what keeps him trapped is that he does not see the danger in existence because he thinks existence, that this realm here, this is permanent, everlasting and eternal. So he doesn't see the impermanence and the perishable nature of even this long-lasting celestial drama world. And because he is blind to the impermanence, Brahma himself affirms existence. He says, all of this world, the earth, water, fire and air, all of this is my creation and he wants all living beings to appreciate it and to worship him as the divine creator. And Brahma himself takes the light and clings to existence because of his view of I am the overlord, I am the master, I am the supreme one. Everybody else has to sit at my feet and worship me. So this is his clinging and delight in existence. And the Buddha has seen through all of this which means that the Buddha has reached what is beyond all becoming, all existence. He's reached Nibbana, which is Bhava Niroda, the cessation of existence, cessation of becoming, the, the destruction of craving and delight. And so when the Buddha speaks this verse, completely invisible. It shows that the Buddha transcends the understanding of all beings who are still bound up in ignorance and craving. But the beings who are bound in ignorance and craving, Mahabrahma, cannot escape from the Buddha because the Buddha has completely understood the nature of the world. And so then all the members of Brahma, Mahabrahma and Brahma's assembly and all of the members are struck with wonder and amazement and say, it is wonderful sirs, it is marvelous, the great power and great might of the recluse Gautama. They weren't aware of that before because the Buddha has appeared to them just like an ordinary human being. He hasn't revealed his, all of his qualities of physical excellence. And so they say, we have never seen or heard of any other monk or Brahma or Brahmin who has such great power and such great might as the recluse Gotama. Even though he is living in a generation that delights 
in becoming, that takes delight in becoming, that rejoices in becoming. He has pulled out, destroyed all becoming together with its root. What is the root of becoming? What is it? Craving. Craving. Tanha. Okay, so now when the Brahma's assembly say this, they're beginning to develop sadha towards the Buddha. <laughs> but then Brahma, the evil one, now becomes really afraid that he's going to lose <laughs> his grip, his control of Brahma's assembly. So Mara, who is the master of creation, again takes possession of one of the lower members of the Brahma's assembly and appeals to the Buddha. He says, Good sir, if that is what you know, if that is what you have discovered, do not guide your disciples, whether they be lay people or monks. Do not teach the Dhamma to your laid, to your disciples, whether they be lay people or monks. Create no yearning, and a yearning for deliverance, for liberation, in your lay disciples or in those gone forth. Now Mara is going again with some deceptive trick. He's going to try to deceive the Buddha. He says, before your time, Bhikkhu, there were some recluse, recluses and Brahmins in the world who claimed to be accomplished and fully enlightened who claimed to be perfect Buddhas. And they gave instruction to their disciples, they taught the Dhamma to their disciples, they created some desire for deliverance in their disciples, but when they died and passed away, they were reborn in some lower world. While in the past there were other recluses and Brahmins who claimed to be accomplished and fully enlightened and they did not give any instruction or teaching to their disciples. They just kept quiet and silent. And after, with the dissolution of the body after death, they were reborn in some higher world. So, Brahma says, I tell you this, live quietly here and now and don't teach the Dhamma to anybody else. That is, Mara now, he's aware that he cannot trap the Buddha 
by trying to make the Buddha bow down to Brahma and worship Brahma as the supreme deity. Because now Brahma and all of his followers have recognized that the Buddha is superior, the enlightened one. But now Mara is trying to appeal to the Buddha not to teach others. He's aware the Buddha has escaped, but I don't want others to learn the Dhamma and to escape. In the Mahaparinibbana Sutta we learn that at the time when the Buddha first achieved enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, at that time also Mara came to the Buddha and pleaded with him, now you're enlightened, but don't teach the Dhamma to others. Just live quietly and happily in the forest, and when you pass away, then you'll gain Nibbana for yourself. So, no need to teach the Dhamma to others. And at that time, the Buddha said that it's my intention to teach the Dhamma to bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, laymen and laywomen, and it's only after I have fully established the sasana in the world where there are bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, laymen and laywomen who can properly teach the Dhamma to others who are fully accomplished in the Dhamma then I will pass away. And now another time here Mara is appealing to the Buddha even though he might have been teaching for some time but the Mara says, don't teach anymore. Just stay peacefully. You have a nice cootie. People will bring you food. You have. You just go on Pindapata. They'll give you robes. And don't bother to try to teach others. But now again, Mara call of Buddha, the Buddha calls Mara's number. He says, when this was said, he tells Mara, I know you evil one, do not think he does not know me. You are Mara, the evil one. It is not out of compassion that you are speaking in this way, but it is without compassion for their welfare, the welfare of his disciples, that you speak thus. And the reason why you are speaking in this way is because you are afraid those to whom the Rikus Gotama teaches the Dhamma will escape, will escape from my sphere. And now the Buddha goes on to say, that those recluses and brahmins of yours who claim to be fully enlightened ones and who you, you say did not teach the Dhamma to others and who were reborn in a higher world, those were not truly fully enlightened ones. Those were just deluded ascetics. But I, who claim to be accomplished and fully enlightened, I am truly accomplished and fully enlightened. 
if the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma to disciples, he is such that is a fully enlightened one. And if the Tathagata does not teach the Dhamma to others, he is such that is a fully enlightened one. And why is that? Because the Tathagata has abandoned the asapas, the defilements or taints, which bring about renewal of existence, which cause rebirth, and which bring trouble, which ripen in suffering, and which lead to future birth, aging, and death. He has cut them off at the root made them like a palm stump, done away with them so that they are no more subject to future arising. Just as a palm tree whose crown is cut off is incapable of further growth, so too the Tathagata has abandoned these taints or defilements done away with them so that they are no more subject to future arising. And when the Buddha says this, then Mara knows that he's defeated and disappears. And then that is the end of the sutta. Is that good sutta? <laughs> Actually, I think it's really, as I said last time, I find it really an incredible sutta. And if, if we know some filmmaker, it would make really a marvelous film. <laughs> okay, if there are any questions about the sutta, then we will take the questions. The that we have is vinyana consists. Excuse me? Vinyana. Vinyana. Yeah, that is Well, vinyana means consciousness, not concepts. It's a type of, any type of awareness. And so the usually when vinyana is spoken of in the suttas, it means the consciousness of either the five senses or mental consciousness. Consciousness of ideas, concepts, judgments, non-sensuous objects. But here the Buddha, as I said in my view, he's referring to a type of consciousness. It's also, it's one of the six types. It's a mano-vinyana, a type of mental consciousness. But it's a consciousness which is supramundane, lokutra. Yeah, now Pajapati was, the word was used in the Vedas, to, or I think the late Vedic period, as a term for a supreme deity. The word Pajapati means literally the Lord of creation. And so Pajapati was used in the Vedic literature to mean one of the aspects of the supreme God. And here the Buddha is using it 
I think just to be comprehensive in bringing in the different types of the different names for the deities the commentator explains that Pajapati since it means Lord of creation and the creation is a sphere of Mara so Pajapati must be Mara but I think that's just to sort of It's not really an acceptable explanation of the commentator. He just wants to be sort of clever. I'll just repeat the question. Okay, the question is, how, okay, Bhakti Brahma is a Putuchana, so as a Putuchana, how could he be reborn in such a plane? Actually, all of these high planes, all the way through the Rupa Loka and the Arupa Loka, all the beings in those planes, except the Aryans, are Putuchanas. Putuchanas can be reborn anywhere in Samsara. What is, a distinct, what is distinguishing of the Putuchina? It means someone who has not gained any of the supramundane paths or fruits. Somebody who has not seen or understood the Dhamma. Somebody who has not entered the path to the eradication of ignorance and defilements. So within the triple world of samsara, the sensuous world, the fine material world, the immaterial world. There are so many, 99.9999% of those beings are Putujanas. It's just very, 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 very few. Just like the grains between the, the fingers compared to the grains of sand in the river Ganges. That's like the Aryans compared to the Putujans. So, without any degree of enlightenment, any insight into the Dhamma, beings who are seeking higher worlds will practice Samatha meditation, Samadhi meditation, without any Vipassana, and they'll develop high degrees of concentration, and through that power of concentration, they take rebirth, into the Brahma world, the higher fine material realms, the immaterial realms. And then they live there for many, many aeons, imagining that this is eternal bliss until the karma of their meditative attainments wears out, then they pass away and take rebirth elsewhere. Because that's the way it is in samsara. They, they, so they, so they are very powerful. They, and yeah. their bodies are, you know, uh, and bodies. Yeah. Their mental power is very high, but they haven't realized the real truth. They haven't realized the, the ultimate truth. That's why the Buddha says that the appearance of a Buddha is such a rare and precious thing. And all the Buddhist people, they take the Buddha Dhamma so much for granted 
thinking that there'll always be Buddhas around. <laughs> and so we can they also, they also now wish to be born in heavens and uh, Buddhists. Yeah. Yeah, now it's true also with once one has samaditi, even if it's not yet the samaditi of a stream enterer, but if one really has true right understanding, I mean, not just because you're a traditional Buddhist and you listen to sermons on the BBC uh, or, or, or the SLBC, but if you're somebody who has really been a very clear understanding of the Dhamma and maybe it's practiced insight but without realizing any paths or fruits but if that right view is still very strong through the meritorious karma they can be reborn in the Deva world if they have jhanas they can be reborn in the Brahma world but it's likely that that samadhiti will stay with them so that they will be able then to continue developing the path from the, in the Deva world or the Brahma world if they really have very firm right view. But if they don't have right view and just do meritorious deeds because they want to enjoy the celestial pleasures, then it's likely that once they get reborn into the Brahma world it's <laughs> or into the Deva world, then they just forget the Dhamma altogether and just... It's like... <laughs> what is that? They can even end up in hell after that. Anywhere, you know. <laughs> but that, the Sudhavasa is accessible only to non-returners. The Sudhavasa, it's a very special compartment of the Rupa Loka. Only non-returners, even the lower Aryapugalas cannot be reborn. Only Anagamis. It seems Brahma Sahampati was definitely a follower of the Buddha Dhamma, so he did not have that delusion. Yeah. He, I'm not sure whether he himself was an anagami from a previous Buddha world or not. I would have to look in the commentary. But anyway, I think it's clear that he had samaditi from, from the sasana, dispensation of earlier Buddhas. And so when the Buddha appeared, then he did not have any delusion and he came and pleaded with the Buddha to, to teach the Dhamma. Then several times during the Buddha's teaching career, Brahma Sahampati tried to help the Sasana. So he is very different in character from Bhakka the Brahma. Bhante, how is it that uh, God's hierarchy that there are three kinds of gods that are higher than Brahma, like gods of streaming radiance and, yeah. and great truth and ultimate yeah. So how is it that Brahma is not aware of them so that he believes that he is uh, more, the most powerful or how is it that they don't, don't show themselves in front of him? And 
Are they more powerful than him actually? Or they not? are more powerful. They are higher than he is. And he's just not aware of them. He's not aware of them. Yeah. And they are not interested to show that. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> Senses are too low, like our, our senses are too low to see the Karma Yeah, mm-hmm. so he's not aware of their world. And maybe from their point of view, he is like, um, maybe they can't even, under- he, Bhakti the Brahma cannot even understand the, their language. There's probably not even a telephone communication. <laughs> no fax machines either. Yeah, yeah. That was a, a somewhat different case. Um, it does not say that Mara entered Ananda the way Mara enters here into the members of of Brahma's assembly and takes possession of them. So that Mara is like a, a when you have here sometimes a Buddha takes possession of the person. That is what happens here. That didn't happen in the case of um, Mara and Ananda. What Ananda says is that his mind was obsessed by Mara. And it's really, I have to say, it's a puzzling, the whole passage is really very puzzling and mysterious. But what's said in the commentary and also so many other things in the commentary, one has to realize that it's conjecture being made by teachers several hundred years later. But what's said is not that Mara took possession of me. He says, my mind at that time Mara was obsessing my mind. And what's explained in the commentary is that when the Buddha was giving these hints to Ananda that if he wanted he could extend his lifespan for the duration of the Kalpa, then Mara displayed certain hideous forms in front of Ananda. He manifested fearsome forms. And so when Mara saw, when Ananda saw those fearsome forms of Mara, then his mind was afraid, and just he forgot about the Buddha's statement. That's what the commentary says. But um, it could be the case that what Ananda actually meant is that just his mind was not working properly. He was just obtuse and not thinking clearly. So that when he looks back at it in retrospect, he wonders, why couldn't I think clearly and ask the Buddha to stay on for such a long time? Then he would think, well, my mind must have been dull and just uh, not mindful because Mara was taking, was obsessing my mind. Excuse me? Daydreaming or thinking of something else. We have to remember Ananda was, he was a stream enterer, but not an arahant. And so he's still, you know, subject to the working of certain defilements.
Any other questions? Well, so the Brahma of the Hindu Trinity, it seems that in er very early Indian thought, Brahma was regarded as one of the high deities. But then in later Hinduism, the attention changed and Brahma just really faded into the background. Then other deities took the forefront, especially Vishnu and Shiva. They each had their own groups of devotees. And the idea that was developed by the Hindu philosophers to unify all the different schools of Hinduism was to teach that all of these different deities are just different manifestations of the same single deity, the same divine reality. And then we consider, they say that we consider this divinity to have three aspects. The divinity as the creator, <coughs> that we call Brahma. The divinity which sustains or preserves the world, that is Vishnu. And then the divinity who destroys the world, that is Shiva. Okay, then we will stop now.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.